Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home, where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we're reading Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 20, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on Luke. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 20. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptized you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. With so many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. We learn, firstly, from these verses, that one effect of a faithful ministry is to set men thinking. We read concerning John the Baptist's hearers that the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. The cause of true religion has gained a giant step in a parish or congregation or family when people begin to think. Thoughtlessness about spiritual things is one great feature of unconverted men. It cannot be said in many cases that they either like the gospel or dislike it, but they do not give it a place in their thoughts. They never consider. Isaiah 1.3 Let us always thank God when we see a spirit of reflection on religious subjects coming over the mind of an unconverted man. Thinking and deliberation are the high road to conversion. The truth of Christ has nothing to fear from sober examination. We invite inquiry. We desire to have its claims fully investigated. We know that its fitness to supply every need of man's heart and conscience is not appreciated in many cases simply because it is not known. Thinking, no doubt, is not faith and repentance, but it is always a hopeful symptom. When hearers of the gospel begin to muse in their hearts, we ought to bless God and take courage. We learn, secondly, from these verses, that a faithful minister will always exalt Christ. We read that when John saw the state of mind in which his hearers were, he told them of a coming one far mightier than himself. He refused the honor which he saw the people ready to give him and referred them to him who had the winnowing fork in his hand, the Lamb of God, the Messiah. Conduct like this will always be the characteristic of a true man of God. He will never allow anything to be credited to him or his office, which belongs to his divine master. He will say, like Paul, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants, for Jesus' sake. 2 Corinthians 4.5 To commend Christ dying and rising again for the ungodly, to make known Christ's love and power to save sinners, this will be the main object of his ministry. He must increase but I must decrease, will be a ruling principle in all his preaching. He will content that his own name be forgotten, so long as Christ crucified is exalted. 
Would we know whether a minister is sound in the faith and deserving of our confidence as a teacher? We have only to ask a simple question. Where is Christ in his preaching? Would we know whether we ourselves are receiving benefit from the preaching we attend? Let us ask whether its effect is to magnify Christ in our esteem. A minister who is really doing us good will make us think more of Jesus every year we live. We learn thirdly from these verses the essential difference between the Lord Jesus and even the best and holiness of his ministers. We have in it the solemn words of John the Baptist, I indeed baptize you with water, he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Man, when ordained, can administer the outward ordinances of Christianity with a prayerful hope that God will graciously bless the means which he himself appointed. But man cannot read the hearts of those whom he ministers. He can preach the gospel faithfully to their ears, but he cannot make them receive it into their consciences. He can apply baptismal water to their foreheads, but he cannot cleanse their inward nature. He can give the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper into their hands, but he cannot enable them to eat Christ's body and blood by faith. Up to a certain point he can go, but he can go no further. No ordination, however solemnly conferred, can give man power to change the heart. Christ, the great head of the church, can alone do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is his peculiar office to do it, and it is an office which he has delegated to no child of man. May we never rest until we have tasted by experience the power of Christ's grace upon our souls. We have been baptized with water, but have we also been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Our names are in the baptismal register, but are they also in the Lamb's book of life? We are members of the visible church, but are we also members of that mystical body of which Christ alone is the head? All these are privileges which Christ alone bestows, and for which all who would be saved must make personal application to him. Man cannot give them. They are treasures laid up in Christ's hand. From him we must seek them by faith and prayer, and believing we shall not seek in vain. We learn, fourthly, in these verses, the change that Christ will work in his visible church at his second appearing. We read in the figurative words of his forerunner that he will clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The visible church is now a mixed body. Believers and unbelievers, holy and unholy, converted and unconverted, are now mingled in every congregation and often sit side by side. It passes the power of man to separate them. False profession is often so like true, and the grace is often so weak and feeble that in many cases the right discernment of character is an impossibility. The wheat and the chaff will continue together until the Lord returns. But there will be a dreadful separation at the last day. The unerring judgment of the king of kings shall at length divide the wheat from the chaff and divide them for forevermore. The righteous shall be gathered into the place of happiness and safety. The wicked shall be cast down to shame and everlasting contempt. In the great sifting day, everyone shall go down to his place. May we often look forward to that day and judge ourselves that we be not judged of the Lord. May we give all diligence to make our calling and election sure and to know that we are God's wheat. A mistake in the day that the floor is purged will be a mistake 
that is irretrievable. We learn, lastly, from these verses, that the reward of God's servants is often not in this world. Luke closes his account of John the Baptist's ministry by telling us of his imprisonment by Herod. The end of that imprisonment we know from other parts of the New Testament. It led, at last, to John being beheaded. All true servants of Christ must be content to wait for their wages. Their best things are yet to come. They must count it no strange thing if they are met with hard treatment from man. The world that persecuted Christ will never hesitate to persecute Christians. Marvel not if the world hates you, 1 John 3.13. But let us take comfort in the thought that the great master has laid up in heaven for his people such things as surpasses man's understanding. The blood that his saints have shed in his name will all be reckoned for one day. The tears that often flow so freely in consequence of the unkindness of the wicked will one day be wiped from all faces. And when John the Baptist and all who have suffered for the truth are at last gathered together, they will find it true that heaven makes amends for all things. That is the end of Rao's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today, and may the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory. In considering what we've just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? First, does the preaching you hear at church or online make you and others think or lull to sleep? Second, does the preaching and teaching you sit under pass the bar of this qualification of exalting and making much of Jesus Christ? Has sitting under such teaching increased your esteem of Jesus? Third, Do we find comfort in being baptized by water, or taking the elements of the Lord's Supper, or being on a membership list? Or, do we find our comfort in the work that necessarily must lie behind them? What exactly are we trusting in? Fourth, to what effect have the doctrines of heaven and hell on our souls? Does the finality and the fearfulness of not belonging to the Lord cause us to make our calling and election sure? And lastly, how does our hope of heaven change how we live today?